Philippians chapter 3. A while back I was reading an article, and, and frankly I don't remember what the article was actually about, but uh, one story struck me uh, as uh, uh, frankly funny. Um, the old Merv Griffin show. Uh, Merv Griffin was interviewing this guy who was a bodybuilder. And apparently he had won uh, some contest or, or something. He was on there. And uh, apparently the man was, you know, to use the, the phrase my kids like, ginormous. Okay? I mean, uh, he was huge. Uh, you know, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger type. And, um, and they're talking a little bit. And Merv asked him, uh, why do you develop uh, muscles like this? And the guest who was sitting down immediately stood up and he pulled one of these poses. And everybody applauded hey, and, and cheered for him. And Merv said, yeah, yeah, it's impressive, but, but, but what do you do with them? Why do you have them? And the guy stood back up and he did one of those. You know, and everybody hey, and applause. And, and you could tell apparently Merv was a little irritated. He said, yeah, but what do you use them for? And apparently the muscle mass did not translate into brain mass because the guy just kind of stood there and stared at him. He didn't know how to answer Merv Griffin when he asked that question. What do you use it for? Well, today is Resurrection Sunday. And Christians celebrate the resurrection of Christ every Sunday, but on this day in particular, uh, it is the focus of all that we do. And if you ask any Christian, he should be able to tell you why the resurrection is the most important part of Christianity. But do you know this morning why the resurrection is the most important part of Christianity? Perhaps you're sitting here like that bodybuilder and you don't have an answer. You don't know why it's important. Or perhaps you know why it's important that Christ raised from the dead, but you don't understand what practical difference that's going to make in your life today in the 21st century. In the words of Merv Griffin, what do you use it for? So this morning, what I want to do is answer both questions. And if you've been here for the last several weeks, the message will be even more meaningful for you because it will bring to a conclusion the series that we've called The God Who Saves. And here, as we've saw the beginning of our salvation over the last several weeks, we now come to the end of, or I should say the completion of, our salvation. The completion of the salvation for all those who have put their faith in Christ. And what I want to show is that knowing what the end looks like Knowing how it's all going to come out is going to affect how we live our lives today. In other words, what relevance the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of His people have for us today. In order to do this, we want to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. But in order to get some focus and some perspective, I want us to begin uh, reading at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Then chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who, who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their, belly, their, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. May God bless the reading of His Word. From this text, especially verses 12 through 21, I think we should see two directions for our life, two directions that are based on what Christ did on the cross in His death and what God promises will be the future end of all those who look to Him in faith because of the resurrection. Two things this morning. First, we are to worship the Lord of glory. We are to worship the Lord of glory. Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The heart of the Christian message is the belief that Christ is the Savior. That He is the Savior of all the world. That in His death on the cross, He willingly stood in the place of sinners and bore the judgment that should have fallen on them. God's righteous wrath against sin did not fall on God's people, but fell on Christ. It did not fall on deserving sinners, but fell on the righteous one, the one and only who did not deserve to have that wrath come upon Him. And whoever trusts in that sacrifice... Whoever, like Paul, who says, I'm not trusting in my own works and my own righteousness, but I'm looking to Christ as the one who makes me right with God. God says He will forgive them their sins and bring them into His family, giving them eternal life. That's the very center, the very heart of the Christian faith. But what makes that believable? What makes that believable? I mean, you think about it. If you have never grown up in church before, if you've never had any, any understanding of the cross and someone tells you a Jewish peasant who claimed to be God, lived and died and was 2,000 years ago, was, uh, was killed on a, on a Roman crucifix, and if you just believe he was the Son of God, you'll be forgiven of your sins, that sounds kind of wacky, doesn't it? That sounds a little unbelievable. Uh, how does that help me? Well, what makes it believable? What, what stamps the validation that everything that man said and did was true is the fact that he was raised from the dead. It's the resurrection from death. The Bible says that Jesus died for sinners, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day after his death, Christ came back to life. And it's clear he didn't just appear to be alive. You will have some that say, well, it was his spirit that appeared to his disciples. And you know what? I think Jesus knew that we would try and, we would try and say that. 
He knew that people would try and make that mistake because Luke tells us that he appeared to several people. He appeared to uh, some men walking on the road to Emmaus. His body was gone and the disciples are, are, are talking about these things. They don't know what's going on. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24, as the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. But he said to them, why are your hearts troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus said, look, put it to the test. I'm no phantom. I'm no apparition. I'm no spirit come back from the netherworld. Touch me. Feel me. It's me. I'm alive. You saw me on the cross. Look at the nail prints. Look at the scars. This is both your friend and now your Lord. Christ is risen. He is alive. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if that's not true, if it's not true that Christ is raised from the dead, then all of Christianity is bunk. Being here today is pointless. Going to any church is pointless. Worshiping at the feet of Jesus is pointless. It's all worthless. And he says, we of all people should be most pitied in the world if Christ was not raised from the dead. But if he was raised from the dead, if the resurrection is true, then it's all true. Everything that he taught, everything that he did, it's all true. It means he really was God in the flesh as he claimed to be. It means that because of his death on the cross, he really is the only way by which sinful men can be made right with God. And it means that he deserves the complete and total worship and devotion of our lives. And many get hung up on that fact. Many struggle with understanding and believing that Christ came back from the dead. They say something like, well, the disciples stole the body. He didn't really come back to life. There's no, nobody knows what it is because, because they stole it. Well, the Bible shows us where that rumor got started. I think we heard it as Pastor Richard called us to worship this morning with the scriptures. Matthew says, well, the women who were at the empty tomb were going to tell the disciples of Christ's resurrection. Behold, some of the guard from the tomb went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You know, when I was eight years old, my family began this tradition of going to this very large church that was the next city over. Um, and every year we would go there at Easter time because they had a huge production of a passion play. Okay, a passion play is just what it sounds like a play about the passion of Christ. It's the last week of his life. And so they emphasize uh, his atoning death and him being raised back to life. And when I say big production, I mean, I mean big production. Uh, you know, the, the, the auditorium seated uh, several hundred, if not a couple thousand. It's hard when you're eight years old to, to remember, you know, all the details. But uh, they had live animals that they would bring in for, uh, to be mingling around with the people on stage. And they'd actually walk right down the aisles from the back. And so I used to beg to sit on the aisle so I could, you know, pet the animals when they would come by, you know. And uh, Jesus on, just as he did in real life, so in this passion play on... Um, uh, the, 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 the week before uh, his death and resurrection, he came riding in his triumphal entry on an actual donkey in this church. 
And, um, you know, don't get any ideas because, frankly, I would not want to deal with all the mess that's involved in that livestock. Nevertheless, they had this down to a science, and they did it. But the most dramatic thing in all of that was the resurrection scene. And as we, we heard read this morning, there were two guards posted. The tomb had been sealed, that if you break the seal, uh, something bad is going to happen to you by the Roman government. And so in the, in the scene, up on this hill was where, uh, or up on this platform that was shaped like a hill, is where Jesus' tomb was. And they showed him being put in, the tomb being rolled, the seal being on there, and the two guards standing there. And they play the music, and they have some, you know, reading the scripture of what's happening, and then, and then suddenly they make, you hear the sounds like the earthquake, and the lights are dark. And the stone begins to roll away and they have this blue spotlight in the back that's bursting forth. And, and as the stone rolls away and this light shines out, the two guards just completely pass out. And they're, they're just down the stage. And Christ comes out uh, in this gleaming white robe, glowing, and they've got him on lines. And he and they literally lifts him up and he, he flies everybody's head off in the balcony. It was pretty cool for an eight-year-old, let me tell you. Okay. And for a long time, I just thought, you know, that's just what happened. You know, uh, Christ could have zapped the, the soldiers on the way out. But then you actually look at the text, that's not what happened. As you heard it read, that's not what happened at all. You remember what he said? There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. you got to like that. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They had the dead men part right, but they missed why. It wasn't because Christ zapped them. It was because they were completely and utterly astonished. Not only did this angel come down and move the stone away, but as they stood looking inside, instead of seeing the body of Jesus, all they saw were folded clothes. And they didn't know what to do. And they just stood there dumbfounded, terrified, unable to comprehend what they were seeing. So the guards go, and they tell the religious leaders, they say, look, here's what happened. And they say, well, just shut up about it. Don't tell this to anybody else, and here's some money. And you tell them that you fell asleep on guard duty, and the disciples stole the body. Now, immediately, if these guys were Roman guards, you, you, know, you don't fall asleep on guard duty, okay? Otherwise, uh, you're the one that's getting, that's getting killed, okay? You just don't do that. And so you'll notice what they say is, they say, uh, if the governor hears about it, we'll make sure it's okay. See, they're covering themselves. Why? Because Jesus had predicted, I will raise again, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they said, you know, he predicted he would come back to life. And so let's make sure the disciples don't steal the body. But what happens? He really comes back to life. And what do they do? They deny the evidence. They have eyewitnesses that say, he's not there. But they don't believe. To this, Pastor James Boyce says, how perverse is the sinful hearts of men. When Jesus was dying on the cross, the leaders taunted him, saying, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. But now Jesus has done something even greater than that. He was raised from the dead. Yet did they believe on him? Of course not. They could not believe on him because they would not believe on him. They just refused to accept the lordship of Christ. And you know, people do that today. People do that. They will find any ridiculous theory or idea that they can come up with in order to discount, in order to discount Christianity. There, there was one guy that was interviewed on this movie, Expelled, and uh, it's interesting because he was just very adamant: the universe could not have been created by God, just could not have happened. And so the interviewer begins to press him and say, "Well, well, you know, he kind of, you know, he says, well, how did life, you know, begin and all this kind of stuff?" And he said, "Well, ultimately, he got him to say aliens could have come and put life on the planet." So it's more believable that aliens from somewhere else in the galaxy came and put life on this planet than saying God said, I want life? 
Not for me. Not for me. Likewise, for the resurrection, though, several years ago, there was a man by the name of Hugh Schoenfeld who wrote a book called The Passover Plot. And in that book, he said, Jesus planned to be crucified. Now, that's problem number one. All right, nobody wants to be crucified, okay? But Jesus planned to be crucified, but arranged to be drugged with wine fortified with medicine and then be rescued from the tomb by his disciples. However, Jesus, not being the smart man that he, that he claimed to be, had not planned for the Roman soldiers to spear him in the heart, which ultimately killed him. Therefore, those who went to rescue him discovered his dead body and simply buried him and made the story of the resurrection up. Now, that's, that's got several problems that make it ultimately ludicrous, and yet people believed it. The book sold millions. Why? Because if they could explain away the resurrection, they could, they could do away with Christ. It didn't matter for their life. They didn't have to follow him as Lord. They didn't have to worship him as the risen Christ. They could just say, yeah, that's a nice story, but it didn't really happen. The reality is there's an amazing amount of evidence to show the resurrection of Christ occurred. And I would love to, to take the next five hours with PowerPoints and video and everything else and just walk you through all that is. But I know that if those of you are here for breakfast, the pancakes sitting on your belly is not going to allow that to happen, okay? So what I have done on that sermon sheet, I have given you two books. Two books. Go find those books, borrow them from me, do whatever it takes, and it will give you the evidence for the resurrection if you're struggling with that. But let me give you one piece the piece that I find to be the most compelling evidence that the resurrection of Christ is an incontrovertible fact. And it's simply this, his disciples. His disciples. When Christ is arrested and crucified, they are scared to death and they run for their lives. They run. They abandon him. And eventually some kind of sneak back up and they kind of want to see what's going on. But when challenged, aren't you a disciple of Christ? That They curse profanity and say, I would have nothing to do with that man. Because they feared death and the cross right along with him. Others fled and hid. But then something happens. But biblical history and secular history says something happened over the next few days, over the next few weeks especially, because suddenly these once cowering, fearful disciples are everywhere preaching Jesus. I mean, they're all over the place, starting in Jerusalem and then moving out to the uttermost part of the world, proclaiming Christ as died and raised from the dead. They are preaching that Jesus is the divine Messiah to Jews who want to kill them for blasphemy. They are preaching that Jesus is the one and only God to polytheistic pagans who want to kill them because the lucrative business of idolatry is threatened. They are preaching that Jesus is the supreme Lord to Romans who want to kill them because they have pledged allegiance that only Caesar is Lord. These disciples risk life and limb to take a message of the risen Christ all over the known world, facing hardship and death, seeing converts from every imaginable people group. Who does that for a lie? Nobody says, I'm going to tell a lie so I get to suffer. We don't do that. We tell a lie to get out of suffering, don't we? I mean, I did when I was a kid. Did, did you break that? No, I don't want to spank it. I didn't do it. I don't care what it is. It wasn't me. I'm lying. <laughs> and we do that now, don't we, with everything. We lie in order to make our lives better, whether it's money or power or, or sex or whatever it is. So why in the world would the disciples lie knowing it was going to cost them their lives? The same Peter who was scared to death of the cross died on the cross because he refused at the end of his life to deny Christ like he did at the beginning. And in fact, he went so far as to say, I am not worthy to be killed like my Lord. I want you to turn the cross upside down. What accounts for that change? There's only one possible thing. The resurrection really happened. The resurrection is a fact. Christ was raised from the dead. 
and therefore all that he said was true and all of our lives are owed to him because he, it says, is raised not just from the dead, but he is raised as the Lord of all things. The passage read in Philippians said that he is exalted above all things and given a name above every other name in heaven and on earth as the risen Christ he is worthy of the resurrection of our lives. And the disciples believe that even to the point that they are willing to suffer and die for him. But more than that, if the resurrection is true, it means the promise that Christ made to his people is also true. Just as he was raised back to life from the dead, so also one day God's people will be raised back to life from the dead. This brings us to the second thing we want to see this morning. The second point of application, why the resurrection matters to our life. It not only calls us to worship the risen Lord of glory, it also calls us to live in light of future glory. To live in light of future glory. Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Just as Paul teaches here, the rest of the Bible says that because Christ was raised from the dead, so all those who put their faith in Him will experience a resurrection from the dead. One day, all of God's people, all those who look to faith in Christ will have their bodies transformed just like Christ's body was transformed. You see, Christ was not just, God didn't just do supernatural CPR on him. He was risen as the Lord of glory. He was risen up in a glorified body. Flesh and blood, yes, but flesh and blood untainted by sin, filled with the full divine power of God. To never grow old, to never grow sick, and to never die again. And Paul says the unbreakable chain of salvation is that God will begin, or rather what God began, He will end. And so in Romans 8, he says, Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Therefore, those whom God predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What does that mean? It simply means this. When God determined to save a people, He began to save them to the very end. So those that God calls to faith in the gospel, He justifies. He declares them righteous in Christ, innocent of their sins because the punishment fell on him. But then more than that, more than just declaring them innocent, he says, I am also going to conform you to the image of my son. That is, in this life, I will begin getting rid of the sin that's in your life, cleaning you up as it were, and one day I will finish that process in such a way that the glory that Christ shined with when he came out of the tomb is the same glory that your new resurrected body is going to shine with. The completion of our salvation will cause us to reflect back the glory of the one who saved us. And Paul says that when Christ was raised, he was raised as the firstborn among many brothers. God adopts us into his spiritual family when we place our faith in him. And in that sense, spiritually, we are brothers and sisters with Christ, God's son. And just as he was glorified through his resurrection, one day we also will be glorified. You understand, that is ultimately the hope of Christianity. That's the hope of the future glory that Christians have. You see all the time in movies and television that, that heaven is some kind of um, ethereal existence of, of, of spirits and phantom-like creatures who look like they're in robes and have wings and play harps all the time. That's not what the Bible predicts or shows what the future is going to be like. We're not just flying around the, the planets all of our life as disembodied spirits. That, that's not it. 
That's not it. That's not what we were designed for from the beginning of creation. We were designed as physical, material beings who though both have physical nature, also have a spiritual nature. And both have been corrupted by sin. And God says, the future glory, the future hope is this. I will remake this entire universe so it's not corrupted by sin. And part of that recreation involves us as well. It involves us as well. It's about God doing a miracle for each and every one of His people, whether it's a rotting corpse in a coffin or the smallest particle of dust from long-faded dead remains and recreating them into a radiant, everlasting body fit for the glories of God's presence so that God and His people can enjoy face-to-face fellowship for all eternity. That is the hope of the resurrection. That is the Christian hope of final salvation. Several years ago in an earlier generation, there was a minister and a well-known Bible speaker named Harry Ironside. And one day Ironside was traveling on a train to Southern California and a gypsy woman boarded and sat down next to him. And she said, how do you do, gentlemen? I can give you your past, your present, and your future. I can tell you all. To this Ironside said, well, it's not really necessary for you to tell me my fortune. I, I know my fortune, I know my past, I know my present, and my future. And in fact, I've got it written down in a book. She said, this is... This is amazing. You have all of that written in the book. He says, he says, yes. He goes, in fact, let me read part of it from you. He says, this is my past. And he opens a New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, you were once dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work of the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The woman was scared when he pulled out the New Testament. And she said, that, that's plenty. I don't want to hear anymore. And he says, no, 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 come here. Don't go away yet. There's more. Here is my present. And he reads the very next verse. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gypsy woman said, no more, no more. But I inside said, no, no, you have to still hear my future. And he began reading the very next verse. God did all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Ironside said, the woman was shaking her head, muttering as she went away, I took the wrong man. I took the wrong man. Ironside said, look, here's my past, my present, my future, and I won't charge you a quarter for it. And how do I know that? Because God has said it. And he has proved it through the resurrection of his son. With Christians, we can know with certainty what our future is. We know our past. We know that all too well. And sometimes the devil excels in bringing that up and throwing it in our face and trying to make us feel guilty for it. You are a sinner. What makes you think you can be saved? And we say, I can't be saved by what I do. I'm only saved because of what Christ has done for me. And I know my future is secure. It is a life of joy and love forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. A life that's unstained by sin where God is perfectly glorified and God's people are completely satisfied. And Paul says if we have that certain hope of the resurrection of God's people, then our lives should reflect it here in this life. Philippians 3 is talking about the future glory of Christians and the resurrection. He says, not that I have already obtained it. Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Paul says if we have a resurrection that is coming, that says our citizenship is not here in this world because this world will one day be gone. It's in the world to come. Our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, all the more now in this life, we strive for that future glory. We press on in the midst of pain and sorrow, knowing something far better is coming. And Paul says we do that. We do that not by imitating those who would be enemies of the cross of Christ. These are people, he explains, that would claim to be Christians, but never teach of the cross and never seek to live a a life that bears the cross as Christ told his disciples to do. Rather, the enemies of the cross are those that pretend to worship the risen Christ, but they really worship their own appetites and desires. They preach not to exalt God, but to build their own bank account. Paul says, don't don't follow them. They are enemies of the cross. Instead, as people saved by God's grace the shed blood of Christ, imitate those who would live a cross-centered life. Imitate those who would revolve their entire life around Christ Follow the example of godly men and women who were ultimately following the example of Christ himself who didn't live for his own glory, but for the glory of his heavenly Father. That's how we live now in light of future glory. Several years ago, Bob Dylan put out a song that many of his contemporaries in the music industry did not like, and many of his fans didn't like. And that was odd because at this time, Dylan was at the height of his popularity. The song was called Gotta Serve Somebody, and I'm I'm not going to sing it like Dylan. I'm not that nasally. Nevertheless, when you hear the lyrics, you'll know why it made people upset. It came in a time when everything was about personal freedom and nobody telling you what to do. And here's what he said. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he's right. He's right. Dylan got it right. Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Because Christ is risen, he is risen as the Lord of all things. And he says, a day is coming at the appointed time when whether willingly or unwillingly, all will bow the knee to Christ and acknowledge His Lordship. They're either going to do it willingly with joy and love, or they're going to do it grudgingly with anger and malice. They're either going to do it as justly condemned sinners on their way to hell, or graciously forgiven sinners on their way to an eternity with God. Friends and loved ones, know where you're going to be bowing the knee. Know where you're going to be bowing. Is it going to be in this life submitting to the Lordship of Christ, knowing that He is the glorious risen Savior? Or is it going to be in the next? When you've been condemned for your sins justly and punished forever because you refused to hear and see the truth of the resurrection and you failed to follow Christ. You failed to trust Him with your life. You failed to accept Him as Savior. 
Paul said and Jesus said, one day every knee will bow. The question is, are you going to want to do it? Are you going to delight to do it? Because you know that means you're not just giving something up, but you're gaining everything. Everything you could possibly imagine. Or is it going to be in the eternal damnation of hell? Where you willingly and grudgingly know that Christ is Lord because he has sentenced you to eternal death for your sins. Receive Christ. Receive Christ as your Savior. He says, all who are weary and, and, and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Stop trying to think your life is going to be good enough to earn you something in the next because it's not. It's not. Instead, Christ has earned everything that you need. Look to him for salvation. And dear Christian brothers and sisters, us of all others, of everyone in the world, how much more should we live joyfully and obediently under the Lordship of Christ this day? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and amazed at your work in saving us. Father, we are especially mindful of your work in bringing us to faith, not in a dead Savior, but into a risen Savior. And Father, tonight I pray, Lord, today that if those that are here that are not saved, God, as they have heard the gospel, that you will send your Spirit into, your, into their hearts to open their minds, to see and to understand the glory of the risen Christ. That, Father, you would work in them in such a way that they would put their faith in Christ and receive salvation this day. Father, I pray that both in this church and in churches that have gone on before us in worship this day and churches that will come after us in worship this day, Father, that today would be a day when the risen Christ is lifted up and exalted and taken joy in. Father, we pray all these things in His name and for His sake. Amen. In response to the message this morning, I invite you to stand and to sing with us, Crown Him with Many Crowns. <laughs>